Hello everyone, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast presented by the California State Railroad Museum. This episode is the second part of a two-part interview with Dr. Mariam Thaggart, a professor of English at the University of Buffalo. In our last episode, we discussed the experiences of female Black Americans on board the railroad in the 19th and 20th centuries. In this episode, we dive into some personal stories of individuals who challenged both the racial and gender boundaries of 19th century travel. Both of these discussions are inspired by Dr. Thaggard's upcoming book titled Writing Jane Crow, African American Women on the American Railroad, which is available for pre-order now and will be released this summer. We hope you enjoy. So one thing I really wanted to discuss with you is the title of your book. Um, so it's titled Writing Jane Crow, which um, obviously brings to mind Jim Crow. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you came up with um, that title name um, and maybe how Jane Crow is different or similar to Jim Crow? Okay, well, um, just as a little background for people who may not be familiar with the term Jim Crow, um, Jim Crow was um, the name of a song, uh, Jumping Jim Crow, that became popular in the early 1800s, I would say maybe 18, around the 1830s, um, by a minstrel performer, uh, a white male performer by the name of T.D. Rice. Um, his performance called Jump Jim Crow became very popular, and um, eventually the term Jim Crow came to signify the second class train compartment, the compartment in which African-Americans were forced to ride or that wasn't as well kept as other train compartments. Um, So I use the term Jane Crow, but it's not simply the feminized version of Jim Crow. Um, In fact, Polly Murray, um, who is the subject of my conclusion, um, Polly Murray was a lawyer, poet, priest, scholar, uh, really an amazing individual. Um, Polly Murray as a lawyer came up with the concept of Jane Crow um, to talk about the, uh, the ways in which laws preventing racial discrimination could be used to help fight gender um, discrimination and sexual uh, orientation discrimination. Uh, And so Murray has uh, a whole body of work uh, that analyzes this concept of Jane Crow. So jumping into Polly Murray a bit, um, who are they and why are they important to the stuff that we've been discussing so far? Um, And Polly Murray is such a fascinating individual. Um, There is a really great documentary about Murray on Amazon Prime uh, called My Name is Polly Murray or I Am Polly Murray. Um, And just a fascinating individual um, born in North Carolina, uh, I believe in 1910, born female, um, but um, during his 20s, and I'm using the masculine pronoun, and I could talk a little bit more about why I do that, but uh, during his 20s, very much identified as male. Um, and Polly Murray left 
his archive um, at the Radcliffe uh, Schlesinger Library. Um, that's a really important repository for uh, women's histories, women's lives. Um, and it turns out by looking through Murray's archives, we find that Murray was hospitalized um, at several different moments uh, in his 20s. And when he's hospitalized, he actively seeks information about hormone treatments to um, more fully live out a life as a male. Uh, and this is in the 1930s. This is, you know, way before, you know, our contemporary period where we're a little bit more familiar or we're more knowledgeable about um, hormone treatments to, you know, live the life that um, you want to have. And Murray was just such a um, forerunner to so many aspects of 21st century life. Murray, before Rosa Parks, you know, refused to give up his seat on a bus. Um, you know, before all of our discussions about um, gender identity and transgender identity, identified as male at one point in his life. Um, Murray was a co-founder of the National Organization for Women, you know, but we don't talk about Murray when we talk about that particular organization or she doesn't or he doesn't come up as often uh, as some of the other co-founders at that particular organization. So Murray was just such a fascinating individual. And the more I learned about Murray, the more I really came to perceive this individual as, um, I don't know, the sort of book spirit. <laughs> I don't know, the, um, Murray sort of overshadows, I think, different aspects of this book. It's like, Murray became my uh, muse in, in some ways, um, you know, reading about his experiences, hopping the freight car, um, reading about, you know, not being treated fairly because uh, in law school, Murray presented as female, uh, went to Howard Law School, and most of the other law school students were male, Black men, and being sort of dismissed because you know, uh, Murray presented as female. Um, and she, Murray is just such a fascinating individual who uh, broke so many boundaries so early um, and until quite recently hasn't been as fully acknowledged for all of the accomplishments uh, Murray has had. So I, I think Murray is just such an important figure, an overlooked figure uh, much like the experiences of the Black women in the book have been overlooked. So out of curiosity, um, you mentioned that Polly tried to get um, hormone treatments while in the hospital. Do we know if they were successful at that? No, um, and, and this is really one of the more painful aspects of you know reading about Murray's life. You know, when you look at the um, accounts of when he's hospitalized. And I have to reference to that. I'm, uh, I learned about the hospitalizations through the work of another scholar, Doreen Drury, uh, D-R-U-R-Y. -R -R 
who wrote her dissertation on polymery. Uh, and in her dissertation, she talks about the hospital records and Murray's notes while he was being hospitalized. And Murray wrote about, you know, going to doctors to see if there were certain hormones that could be placed within him that would help Murray live out this male identity. Um, and it's really painful to read about how Murray's questions were sometimes dismissed, um, not taken seriously. Um, you know, yeah, it, it's just really painful to read how Murray, Murray's questions weren't um, taken with the seriousness that I think they deserve. Um, and Drury has written uh, several articles on Polly Murray, and I also highly recommend those articles if you're interested about interested in Murray and uh, Murray's quest for um, acquiring uh, a gender identity that reflected who Murray thought Murray was. So do we have any idea why he isn't brought up so much when um, discussing the history of, you said, the uh, National Organiza Organization for Women? Uh, why is his legacy often overlooked, do you think? I mean, on the one hand, we could say that there was some sexism in the civil rights movement, which I think a number of people have documented. Um, I think there's also some element of transphobia in uh, some communities that Murray interacted with. Um, you know, I, I'm not quite sure why it is that recently Murray has been more discussed. I mean, now there, there are at least four to five biographies on this one individual, uh, Polly Murray. Um, the most recent one by uh, Rosalind Rosenberg, titled Jane Crow. Um, and as I mentioned, there's now a documentary on Murray's life. I, I think Murray resonates with so many people. I, I actually taught Polly Murray's autobiography in one of my classes this past fall. And so many of my students just really identified with the kinds of concerns Murray was wrestling with as a young person. Um, the autobiography is called Song in a Weary Throat. Uh, really well-written autobiography covering so many important historical moments in U.S. history, um, like uh, the civil rights movement, um, like the development of now. Uh, just, I, I really can't emphasize enough how important and how fascinating this person is. So one of the things I think that is really interesting about your book is that it does focus itself on several key individuals, um, which at the museum, you know, we try to do as well. Um, we like to say that our lives are made of railroad stories, and we tell the stories of the railroad through the stories of people. Um, that's exactly what your book does as well. So maybe we can start discussing some of those folks. Um, so part of your book focuses on the experiences of Pullman maids. Uh, which, you know, were the counterparts to Pullman Porters. Did you come across anybody, um, any specific individuals in your research on the Pullman maids um, that you'd like to kind of expand upon here? 
Um, yeah, and so really, the book really sort of started with the Pullman Company Maids um, when I found that application um, in the Pullman Company archives. Uh, and the archives, I should say, are located in the Newberry Library uh, in Chicago. Really wonderful, wonderful space uh, to do research. Um, and I take a look at um, three different archival documents, uh, I guess you could say, to analyze the experiences of the Pullman maids. Um, I look at um, Pullman employee cards. So these were cards that the Pullman company had to sort of record biographical information about the porter or the maid, um, you know, things like you know, birth date, uh, where they lived, but it also recorded any sort of infractions to the Pullman company rules. So um, say for example, if a maid didn't keep the woman's restroom clean, that would be listed on the back of the employee card. Um, I also take a look at the a pamphlet called the Instructions for Maids. And this was a sort of four page document that highlighted the rules and regulations for Pullman company maids. Uh, and then I also take a look at an anonymous grievance letter that a Pullman company maid wrote, um, highlighting how she was treated uh, unfairly and wrongly by a train conductor. Um, so I look at all three documents to try to tell the story of the Pullman company maid. Uh, and if we just look at the employee cards, we can find a wealth of information. Uh, so there's one maid, for example, who is repeatedly reprimanded because she likes to read. So the back of her employee card says something like, um, this maid spends 50% of her time reading, or this maid was caught doing puzzles in, in one of the rooms. Um, this maid was giving herself a manicure. And I just find that so fascinating because it's sort of, um, you can sort of read how this particular individual was making her own breaks, you know, and not only just making her own breaks, but taking her breaks so that she could read. And, you know, for any sort of uh, reader or scholar, anyone who loves books, um, there's just a, something about all of those reprimands about reading that I just found so fascinating. Um, and so I just look at these employee cards as a way to try to figure out what um, the Pullman maids were like you know, what their personalities were like uh, and how they tried to skirt some of these rules that were set up for polling company employees. Oh, I love that story. Yeah, no, she, she definitely had her priorities straight there. Uh, always good to make time for reading. Um, so, so another thing that comes up a lot when we talk about uh, Pullman porters, and I'm forgetting the name of the article, but there's a really good article um, about the Pullman P Porter's experience on the Pullman sleeper cars. Um, and they made the, sort of the argument that um, sleep deprivation and, um, you know, tip culture were both things that really uh, should be considered workplace hazards for these folks. Um, was that something we saw as well with the Pullman mates? Yeah. And um, what's interesting is that Pullman porters were known for um, you know, they would rely upon tips. Um, and that was, of course, one of the main reasons why they uh, tried to form the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters to address the sort of uh, 
inequities in the wage system and the tipping system. Um, Pullman maids got tips sometimes by doing manicures and by styling hair, which uh, I thought was really fascinating. But you're right. Um, it was very hard for Pullman porters and Pullman maids to um, you know, have some time for themselves. Um, and so that, that was another reason why I found that particular employee card so fascinating that this maid like really sort of made it a point to make time for herself. And even when she's recommended, she'll, she's continuing to do it. And she wasn't fired. Uh, that's another thing that I thought was interesting. She, this particular maid was furloughed with other maids, um, I think around the 1930s, the end of the 1930s. All right, thank you, Mariam, for that answer. And we're gonna take just a short break from the interview to discuss the sponsor for today's podcast. So we're sponsored by the California State Park Adventure Pass Program. And that's a program designed to connect fourth graders with the California State Park system. It gets the fourth grader and their families into 19 state parks for free. For more information on which parks are participating, as well as how to sign up, go to reservecalifornia.com. Now, back to the interview. So switching gears a bit, another person you talk about in your book is uh, Jane Brown, um, whose case surrounding the railroad and these gender and race relations uh, got big enough for the governor of Mississippi to go ahead and give testimony during her uh, case. So can you tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, so this was um, a really fascinating court case. Um, Jane Brown was a uh, African-American woman based in Corinth, Mississippi. Um, she bought a first-class ticket, uh, 1879, and entered the first-class car. The conductor forced her out. Um, and she sued because um, she said that she had abrasions upon her neck, um, that the conductor forced her out very uh, violently, um, and she sued. Um, she won her court case, but the railroad appealed twice. Um, and during the trial, uh, Jane Brown had residents of Corinth come in to testify that, you know, um, that she wasn't acting inappropriately in the train car. What was interesting was that a number of the residents kept making comments about her chastity, uh, her, her virtue. So they would say things like, um, Jane Brown is not a whore, but she's a kept woman. And there are so many assumptions um, raised in, in, that, in those, that phrase. The fact that these residents think they knew about her private life. Um, and I, I make the argument that people assumed things about Jane Brown because she was so frequently seen about the train station. Um, her mother was a, um, a cook, uh, had her own 
uh, cooking establishment and Jane Brown sold food at the train station to train passengers. Um, and I make the argument that people assume that Jane Brown was a quote unquote prostitute primarily because she was so mobile. She was so frequently seen around the train station. Um, residents made the claim that there was a, a man that kept her. Um, and I'm, I suggest that perhaps that person, if, if this was true, uh, may have been a white male resident of Corinth. Um, <clears throat> the train company actually brought in um, one of the more recognizable figures who was in the train car on that day that Jane Brown was forced out. Uh, and that was the governor of Mississippi, um, John Marshall Stone. Um, and the governor testified that the conductor wasn't violent in getting rid of Jane Brown, um, but he did note that there were some words exchanged between Jane Brown and the conductor. Uh, and so it was, a, it, it was an important case because of course you get the testimony of the governor and then you had all of these residents within the town of Corinth um, who came in to testify about Jane Brown's reputation um, and how that reputation impacted um, how she was treated within that first class space. Yeah, I, I think one thing that you mentioned there that I found particularly um, interesting when we think about modern life and some of the differences uh, from the past. Um, so you mentioned that uh, her presence at railroad station kind of created a, a public life for her, um, that people began to kind of think that they knew who this person was just based on them being at the railroad station in this public space where, you know, everybody in town went to from time to time and um, people began to recognize her and um, believe they knew something about her based entirely on these interactions at the railroad station. Um, and I don't think we have a perfect analogy for that just because, you know, with cars, we're a little bit more dispersed. Um, there's not one central meetup place for us all to go in our cars. Um, even something like an airport sort of similar, but most of us don't go to the airport every day. Um, and sort of with bigger communities, I, like I'm not keeping tabs on who's at the airport this week. Um, but I guess the one way in which it is similar would be to something like social media sites. Um, you know, we, we kind of think that we understand what somebody's like just based upon what they post on Instagram or Facebook um, and sort of this public persona. But you're only seeing a little bit um, of who that person really is. And it's, you know, it's that public facing side. And certain assumptions based upon what might be placed up on Instagram or Twitter. So, yeah. All right. Well, I do want to thank you for coming on the podcast today as we sort of uh, wrap up this discussion. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure um, our listeners will as well. Uh, before we go, I do want to ask you, I know that your book has an uh, interesting connection to our archives and our library at the museum. Um, so I'm interested to hear a little bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, so um, the reason why I went to the California State Railroad Museum, really wonderful place, and I want to like give a shout out to uh, your archives uh, and your museum and library. Um, you guys have this wonderful archive called the Theodore Korn Weibel, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. 
the Theodore Kornweigel collection. Um, and this is an archive um, created by a professor who wrote a book, um, Railroads and the African-American Experience. And I guess in the process of writing that book, collected all of this information, collected postcards, um, kept really great detailed notes about his research. Um, and the papers um, basically consist of the research that he did for that book. Um, and one aspect of the collection includes postcards that I guess um, Professor Kornweibel was able to acquire through eBay. Um, really fascinating postcards. And I remember when I went to your location and looking when I was looking through the archives, I found this image in his papers. Um, and that image is now the cover of my book. Um, it's an image of a young girl, very well-dressed, riding on a freight car. She has on a hat, she has on stockings, she, she has on nice shoes. And I was just struck when I, when I saw this image, I was like, okay, this is it. This is the cover of my book. You know, there, there's something kind of paradoxical about a young girl, so well-dressed, hanging off of a freight car, a, a box car, and looking quite comfortable doing it. You know, she has this sort of odd smile, this odd confident smile. Um, there's just something about this young woman, a uh, young girl, I'm not quite sure how old she is. Um, there's just something about the images that really stood out to me. And I knew I had to have that image as the cover of the book. Uh, and I have to say that your, um, your colleagues were very helpful in helping me uh, get permission to use this as the cover of the book. Uh, and if Professor Kornweibel is listening, I would love to somehow connect with him and to thank him uh, for his really amazing collection uh, that I think is going to get a lot of use um, once people know more about it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk. This was the second part of a two-part interview with Dr. Mariam Thaggart. This episode was produced by Jason Rankins, Amanda DeFazio, and Jacob Jennerjohn. For more information about Dr. Thaggart's new upcoming book titled Writing Jane Crow, African American Women on the American Railroad, please see the link below. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.